Good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, Ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and encouragement. Thanks to our podcasting partner, Pullstring Press, for this great studio, and to Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Mark. Patrick, we've got it. We've got another good one. I, well, That's all never, we do. We but, only record good ones. <laughs> I know. We've got uh, Michael Hanrahan, who's uh, we've been what did we say friends for fifteen years. I think fifteen. You are doing uh, currently. You're working Earth Media Lab here in Santa Barbara, right here in this building. Upstairs, we're down in the buried in the basement. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a quieter space. Much quieter. <laughs> it's yeah. much much quieter. Um, what is? What, tell me about Earth Media Lab. Sure, sure. Uh, so, I think Earth Media Lab grew out of my experience out at UCSB, where I've been teaching uh, basically uh, documentary film, uh, catering towards natural history documentaries. And at the end of uh, this program called Blue Horizons at UCSB, I felt as though that my students didn't have anywhere else to go. I I wanted to give them uh, the next level of of documentary experience. So, and I have, uh, I was building uh, a group of clients that were interested in producing science-based films uh, about their research. So I decided that I would uh, try to take the very best students from my Blue Horizons course out at UCSB and bring them into more of a professional environment and they become interns and we produce essentially uh, short films for scientists about their research in an effort to better communicate uh, the challenging uh, science issues of our day. Is this this is like post grad work then? Do they get a doctorate in uh, docs? <laughs> they should, they should, because I make them work very hard. Um, it's it is it's it's sounds uh, like it. A lot of times they're still out at UCSB. It's an internship, so I I can only get them when they're available, when they're not studying or taking or uh, pursuing other work. So uh, it's typically for most students ten to fifteen hours a week. We've had a lot of professors on the show, and I. Uh, I, I hold teachers in extremely high esteem. In fact, Patrick is a professor of art. Uh, at U- adjunct faculty is the appropriate term. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Adjunct faculty. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It means we're low on the totem pole. Is that what it means? Yeah. Um, but I, I have you guys way up on a pedestal because I can't. I, I am a teacher, but I can't do the same thing to a different group of people. Right. That's what you do. The same thing to a different group of people. And it's like I'm, I'm also a chef and in uh, the restaurant, I'm doing the same thing to a different group of people every day. Same menu, different group where I excelled was in institutional food service where you would think, oh, my God, really? Because now it's the same people. So the food has to be different. Right. But right. I'm doing the same job as you. So it's so I like to come in and teach to a new group of people and then do something different. So what is it about that being a professor that allows you to stay passionate and connected? How do you, where do you find that? That was my question buried in that long (laughs) monologue, sorry. I appreciate the clarification. Um, The passion in teaching, 
Definitely, it is in the subject matter. I'm passionate about uh, documentary film as a vehicle for communicating challenging environmental issues. Uh, nothing quite communicates information and emotion the way that a film does. Uh, but also, it's the students. Every summer, and, and Blue Horizons, I teach uh, an undergraduate program uh, out at UCSB called Blue Horizons during the summer, and then I've been fortunate enough to be teaching at the Bren School of Environmental Science oh. and Management in the sure, fall, sure. Uh, sort of an abbreviated version of what I do in the summer. But really, it's this, it's my interaction with the students and seeing the light that goes on in right. students' eyes right. when all of a sudden they recognize that they've just learned the tools that will enable them to communicate anything for the rest of their lives in a way that people typically pay attention to, perhaps more than the spoken word or the written word, the visual word, the visual information, combining music and imagery and a, and a concise, powerful message. I mean, at this point of our communication as humans, I think that is one of the, if not the most imp important and powerful vehicles for getting messages across. So two things there. One, one is around storytelling. So how do you teach storytelling? It's interesting that you, you uh, storytelling is the most important component of it. And I'm fortunate in that at Blue Horizons, it's broken up into three sections. There's uh, digital video production, the practical elements, the camera, the microphones, the lights. Sure, the tech. Know, direction, uh, uh, editing, digital video editing. But I have two other great instructors that help out in Blue Horizons. That They don't help out. They bring huge amounts to that program. Uh, Richard Hutton teaches storytelling. And then we usually hire uh, someone from NCES, the National Center for Environmental Analysis and Synthesis, to teach a direct uh, sort of marine biology uh, coastal issues course that informs our students on topics that they can make a film about. So there's a backstory. Right, right, exactly. So, uh, so I, although of course I pay attention to storytelling in my program, I don't have to. I don't have to emphasize it in the way that Richard does so well in his course. One of the things I love about storytelling, and that I'm, the reason I love it is because I'm not good at it. I is, find that hard to believe. <laughs> uh, I, no, I think I'm a great storyteller, but I, I'm such an optimist that I tend to. Um, uh, uh, negate or minimize the conflict mm -hmm. and the dragon in my story because <laughs> the dragon always loses but I don't make a I don't make that a plot point right. yet in any good story having the audience feel oh my god how's he gonna get through this and right was the dragon gonna get him or am I gonna you know right and I don't so I'm, I've been working on that since that was made known to me like Mark and I, and I was like well there were no dragons and I start talking to him and I go, hold it, there's a, you're, there's a, a litter of slain dragons behind you, sir. You, let's hear their stories. Right. So Enthusiastically improving your pessimism. <laughs> That's, That's your the goal. Title of mine. That's your goal. It's a new <laughs> memoir. It comes out next week. <laughs> Enthusiastically improving your pessimism. It is true, yeah. though. I think I've only ever seen you in a super good mood. You know, I've never seen, not seen you smiling Correct. and engaging, so... Good Correct. for you. It's part of the strategy. Yeah. Uh, Unicorns and rainbows. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Where's the dragon in documentary filmmaking? Uh, there's, I mean, to your point, there's, there's dozens. Uh, I mean, in uh, today we, you know, there are are dozens of issues, hundreds of issues, uh, large and small, that could be perceived as as a dragon. Um, for me, right now, I'll tell you about. Uh, uh, I'm I'm looking for conflict. Not, I mean, I'm looking for conflict in a documentary that I'm doing some pre-production on now about uh, fishing in Santa Barbara. Um, I'm uh, I'm looking closely at the amount of catch that comes to our docks and how much of it is being exported to the rest of the world. And I have uh, a local fisherman who asked the question, you know, what is it to commoditize your your own backyard? This is a commercial fisherman who loves the Channel Islands, who has been living and diving in these waters since he was born. And uh, he feels that we should be uh, able to appreciate local seafood catch uh, at a reasonable price. Lobster. Or is it that the market is, the market's better if we export it and keeping it local, it's just. Precisely, it's the global economy that now takes a, you know, lobster as an, as an example. The vast majority of the lobster catch in, uh, that comes into Santa Barbara Harbor is quickly shipped down Gone to Los Angeles day, right? and sent over to China largely where it, it's, you know, for upper middle class businessmen and, and families that are appreciating a resource here. So the question is, what's the difference between lobster or tomatoes and Toyotas? Why is there a problem with growing a resource or extracting a resource and shipping it somewhere else? And I, I, I'm not quite prepared to answer that question today, but I think it's worth asking, you know, why would we take, I mean, today you'd be hard pressed to find a Santa Barbara lobster in local Santa Barbara restaurants. Most of the time they're Australian lobster, perhaps a Maine lobster, but Santa Barbara lobster caught out at Santa Cruz, Santa Rosa, brought into the docks. Before it gets to the dock, it's been committed to a distributor that's sending it across the Pacific. We had uh, Sharon Maine, Santa Barbara Foundation, who's working on the LEAF project. And she quoted a similar statistic around how much of our bounty is exported and there's it's some silly number like three percent left for us yeah. locally yeah and and as one of our our mandates or one of the missions of of the show is to think about economic vitality in the region and how do we have businesses do well so on one hand you would say well that local fisherman's doing pretty good he's getting a better dollar uh by selling it to someone else so is, is he under I mean, do we have to go to him and say, you know, really for the good of the people, you should, you know, chart, get $4 less a pound or whatever the number is. That's not a good economic decision for him to make. No, it's not. And uh, one of the benefits of selling to one of these larger distributors is that you can unload your entire catch, right. the, the bulk sum, sure. for a set price. Uh, whereas if he was to distribute locally, he would be doing smaller amounts for for less money so it's true we have to we have to figure out a model and it's pro it's largely based around education which is where film film comes in say again well how does how does i mean how does education who do i need to educate in this problem the consumer um i think that uh when 
if you go to a restaurant in Santa Barbara, my expectation would be that you would have access to a locally caught seafood uh, as, as opposed to one uh, that has been imported from Maine or from Australia, speaking of lobster. So the carbon footprint just for that kind mm. of global economy doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. So if we were to inform the public that, uh, you know, Santa Barbara lobster is A, delicious, in my mind, it's the best tasting lobster, far su superior yeah, yeah. to I Maine agree. or Australian. Uh, and the fact that, you know, you're supporting a local industry, our local commercial fishermen, and we are, you know, you're, you're taking advantage of, you know, there's certainly a movement in uh, produce to be eating more locally, local, organic. Right. So I think that it's just a matter of time of education in the way that people were educated about organic, the benefits of eating organic, with regard to the benefits of eating locally harvested seafood. It's possibly not frozen, it's, so it could be fresher. Uh, you know, we have an issue today, especially in the Pacific, of pollutants. I mean, Fukushima was just a few years ago, and that radioactive acti activity is still circulating throughout the Pacific. Sure. So. You know, uh, we have people testing our waters here and sa and have been illustrating that uh, Santa Barbara waters are clear of radiation. So I don't know. I, I From my perspective, I'd rather be eating a locally harvested seafood than one that's coming from across the country or the world. Let's dive into that a little bit. So the farmer's market uh, on Saturday, one of the top farmer's markets in the state, as it turns out, um, they, you know, we, we, we like, you know, the, this whole uh, buy local, eat local, shop local, uh, the whole promise of 805 Connect is there's a lot of local talent we just don't know. We think we've got to go, you know, south to find expertise or north to find expertise, where if you just look around the corner, that smart person that you need might be right there. We just don't know that. And interestingly enough, now that I think about it, uh, they could probably get a cheaper service in LA or online than they could locally. So it's almost kind of the same deal. I should work with that person <laughs> locally. Uh, no, essentially everything's the same. It uh, is. It is. Let's uh, let's transition a little bit. I know for years you ran Ocean.com, right? And you've been passionately committed to this the idea of, of you know the our environment and. This is our backyard, right? I mean, it's like we're surrounded on three sides by mountain and one side by the ocean. Right. And you spend, were you in the Were you in the ocean yesterday? Uh, I'm going to guess you were within the last few days. I, I've actually been working on an edit, so I haven't been able to get in the water much of late because of the surf, the big surf. No, I mean, you're just, you're just out there studying. I mean, I'm so jealous of that. <laughs> I mean, I really am because it's just such a, a fantastic world. When we think about, um, I'm just thinking about all of the things that you help us as a citizenry pay attention to. Yeah. What are some of the other things, when we talked about lobster and food, what are some of the other bounties or other things that the ocean gives us right here and contributes to the economy? In? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, certainly recreationally in Santa Barbara, uh, the ocean provides people for boating and stand-up paddle boarding and surfing. Um, I think that uh, right now my big emphasis is on the Channel Islands. I recently purchased a, a trawler, a, a boat called a Monk, 
And um, I'm looking forward to this being a, a vehicle for me, getting out to the Channel Islands more regularly and doing multi multiple days of diving and fishing. And uh, my, I want to get back into spearfishing. When I lived in Florida, I, I did a lot of spearfishing and lobster hunting. And I think that as far as uh, fishing goes, as a recreational fisherman, Spearfishing is, uh, is, is the most uh, efficient and uh, least, uh, you know, sort of bycatch. You know, when, you, when you're fishing with a, line, a rod and line, you're not really altogether sure what fish is coming up with the lure. But when you're underwater with a spear and you're pursuing, you know, with a mask, you know exactly the fish that you're looking to take. Do you free dive? Yeah. And uh, for spearfishing in particular, if you have bubbles, it tends to scare away the prey. And that that uh, that can be challenging, but I'm the colder waters uh, here are, have been um, challenging for me because I'm used to free diving in warm, you know, subtropical waters of Florida, and so putting on a five mil wetsuit and the weight, uh, it just becomes more cumbersome. And free diving is all about the Zen of relaxing and reducing your heart rate and very slow, subtle movements. And when you're encumbered by, you know, half an inch of neoprene, it becomes more challenging. I'm gonna guess you know my good friend, Matt Lum. I do know Matt, well, I know of Matt. I can't say that he and I are, you know, we're acquaintances, Dear I Dear friend. Yeah, yeah, he was, he had an issue this summer. Yep, he did with uh, Hammerhead and he won. Yes, <laughs> he did, that was a, that was a very strange thing that was going on this this summer in a period of a week. Well, the you know the the hammerheads coming in, and the aggression that they were displaying right. was really unusual. Uh, I haven't heard. I mean, I heard accounts of that incident with Matt, where the animal was, you know, kind of blindly and wildly yes. snapping at him. Yeah. Which you know, in my experience, I haven't unless it's some sort of wild feeding frenzy. You don't often see sharks act like he that. Said there, he said there were thousands of hammerheads out there on the back side of the islands. Right. I believe it. These, you know, we're, we're into such a different period uh, in the ocean with the, the you know, the, the blob, I think they were calling it, the, the giant warm mass of water that has been positioned off of the California coast, unusually warm temperatures, certainly El Nino. Yeah, let's uh, talk about El Nino for a second, because yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna think you're an, an expert on that. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, real, I'm really how, an expert on very few things. <laughs> on, Knowledgeable? On, for, for these 45 minutes, you you're, are I'm, the expert in this room. Yes. In this room. Um, how much of El Nino is media hype? Uh, you know, I can't. I can't really say for sure, Mark. I, I mean, it's a big deal. It's uh, this one. This one in particular seems to be, uh, you know, very, a very powerful. I mean, people are referencing it as the Godzilla El Nino. Um, certainly, we are. Uh, we're experiencing, you know, the impacts across the United States in weather patterns, and we had an abnormally warm fall. I mean, it was in October. Temperatures. In the uh, on out at the Channel Islands were you know comparable to you know that the height you know up close to the 70s uh, as far as water temperature goes and that is uh, it's not unprecedented we have we have these El Nino events you know roughly every seven to eight years but it's it is uh, it's definitely interesting to see how 
in addition to climate change, you know, the impacts on the ocean, the oceans are definitely warming as a whole, but then you couple or you layer on top of that warm waters uh, that, that the El Nino phenomena creates. It, I think we're gonna be seeing uh, very interesting species in our area already. Really? This, well, this past summer we had, we had hammerhead well, sharks. Oh, we had hammerheads, sure. Yeah, they were. There was t uh, certainly. It's not unusual for dorado or mahi mahi or uh, the yellowfin tuna. We're are we showing. talking? Are we talking giant squid? I think. <laughs> are we talking giant squid? Because I feel like they're 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 coming with the warm water. I'm just saying they showed up in Japan. We've got giant squid all right. of a sudden. Right. I think that. Uh, I think that we're. You know, we're going to start seeing you know, more and more unique species that are typically found in Baja or Mexico in our waters, which is not, it's, it's not a problem. It's, it's kind of exciting, but I think, you know, scientists are definitely keeping a close eye on what does this all mean? How is this, again, the coupling of El Nino on top of global warming temperatures? Mm -hmm. I was reading the other day that there uh, is an ongoing global die-off of corals again. Uh, which tends to happen in an El Nino year or years. But again, uh, corals are under so much stress already from corals don't, most species of corals don't appreciate extreme warm temperatures. They, they tend to expel or, or uh, uh, they expel their zooxanthellae, the algae. Well, it's, it's just a scientific term. You don't have to buzzword bingo, huh? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Normally he buzzword bingos anybody who says something that, that doesn't. Buzzword bingo. Yeah. yeah. So in, they, they expel their. Zoxanthellae. Wow. That is uh, the symbiotic animal that lives within the coral that, uh, uh, zoxanthellae, it's, it's, it's an algae uh, you know, I'm, we're going to have to fact you, check you, that uh, one. I, uh, listener, um, I'm looking at uh, uh, Michael as he looked up into the sky to recall that <laughs> because um, you actually actually created uh, the encyclopedia of the sanctuary, which is uh, out of channel. I mean, you did that. So, I mean, you are the expert on zooxanthellae. Again, I'm, I'm clearly not because I can't recall if it's an algae or an animal. But um, I did. Well, that was uh, so the Encyclopedia of the Sanctuary was part of an Ocean.com uh, Ocean Channel project for the National Marine Sanctuary right, Program, right. where we did something super fun, uh, Mark. We, for the 14 National Marine Sanctuaries, there's, they're all over the United States. We have one right out here, the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary, and that's where we began. We identified 100 marine species. Uh, mammals, fish, plants, uh, etc. And of those hundred species, we created online uh, sort of biological profiles of, an, of a photograph, a short video clip, and critical bi biological information so that teachers and uh, students from around the country, when they wanted to get familiar with what's out in my local National Marine Sanctuary, they could not only you know, read the, the text, but they could see what this animal looked like in its natural environment. I want to go back to where we started off with um, science-based film. And you said something about helping uh, tell the story of the work that the scientists are doing. And I'm right. reminded at Wavefront, we had a Harvard scientist come to us. We had just started to work on data visualization. This is 25 years ago and taking numbers and turning them into pictures. And he was doing um, climate analysis of the Gulf of Mexico 
measuring thermoclimes. And the thermoclime is the difference, listener, between uh, the temperature in one body of water and when you transition to another area where it's a different temperature. There's actually a wall there that gets created, and sonar can't go past that or it impedes it or something. Right. And so he, there, here's this Harvard scientist, had never seen his work outside of an Excel spreadsheet. Right. And here he is looking at a picture of it. He couldn't, he literally couldn't sit down. He jumped up and he said, do you know what you're looking at? Mm-hmm. I said, well, uh, no, do, I mean, do you? And he goes, oh, we've never seen this. I said, oh great, we did our job. We helped visualize. And so it, it instantly brought that story back to me where you're working with scientists helping visualize concepts. Right, right. Is that right? It is. You know, there's there's been a strong push, I would say, uh, in the last five or ten years of encouraging scientists to be better storytellers, to, oh. to, to do a better job of communicating their research. And I take a different, I, I see it in a different light in that I believe scientists should continue being scientists, you know, focus on your research, Okay. Uh, develop the data, but we need to be uh, building and creating uh, a bridge between the scientists and the general public. So not laying the responsibility of communication at the feet of the scientists, but creating a new breed of communicators that are both, you know, science savvy or, or you know, understanding the, you know, uh, at times, you uh, um, vocabulary, uh, challenging vocabulary of scientists with the um, bits and pieces of media, the ability to produ- uh, create a, a solid um, public re- uh, press release or a short film so that when the scientist is creating their research, when their research is ready for the public consumption, that there's someone there to help them to communicate that to uh, the general public. And that's so there's a great partnership then between right brain and left brain. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And that what you're teaching is that communication professional. How much, so film is, film feels so old school. <laughs> it's true. Right? Um, who was it, the Tarantino's uh, latest film? It was like, no. If you want to see it, it's in a theater with a 70 millimeter projector, and it was all about that old school thing. Right. But the idea of uh, visual storytelling is not. Right. What, what, where's the role, I'm just thinking, where's the role of the internet and these new ways of teaching? How does that improve the scientists' ability to tell their story? I think that, uh, we are def- we have become and continue to evolve to be you know very visual you know extre- i mean we are doing as a culture less reading and more watching certainly right. certainly young people so the ability to give scientists and anyone the the ability to create an image you know the old phrase uh, an image is worth a thousand words uh, i think that we we need to be using those tools not just to be selling Lexuses, but to be selling the critical scientific information that will allow the our species to evolve and overcome the challenges that you know frankly technology of the past hundred years has has put us into a bit of a box you know uh, I think that as we're we there's a there's a 
public relations campaign that needs to be built that explains to people uh, the the need to be uh, weaning, weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels. And sometimes it takes scientists to, uh, of course, it takes scientists to explain the facts behind that. But sometimes the facts as printed as black and white text on a page are not enough. It has to be incorporated with music and beautiful imagery and uh, a strong message. It feels, I mean, I understand that. It feels like, I mean, we're right now in a, you know, a hypercharged political environment and facts don't seem to matter. Mm, it's true. Yeah. And you can have, fa I mean, we're debating facts nightly now. It's like this happened. No, it didn't. Yeah, no, it did. And it, it feels like the person who's more certain is the one who prevails. Right. Facts be damned. Yeah. So what do we do? And, and in fact, they're even challenging scientists. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, he, the listener, he just shook his head like, yeah, you know that. Yeah. Right. So is it the Steve Jobs says the you know, the, the ones who will win will be the better storytellers. It's very true. It's very true. Uh, yeah. I think that that's that's one of the reasons for Blue Horizons, you know, and, and my path as as a filmmaker has been to provide the tools that enable a, a visual story to be presented so that it's, uh, it's not easily, as easily ignored as a, uh, an email or an article. You know, a film, if it's made correctly, it does evoke emotion. Uh, I think that um, I, I present in one of my classes the, the equation that truth plus emotion equals trust. So the truth is in the science, the emotion is in the visual and the music, and the trust is in the consumer that takes the science and the, the media and begins to accept what is being presented to them. I love that. Truth, write this down, truth plus emotion equals trust. That, that easily translates outside of what you're doing, right? I'm thinking of the small business person right now. They're, you know, how do I build trust with my consumer truth? What's the science of, right? What's my truth? Right. Whatever your business truth is. And we could also, we could Im imply authenticity. Exactly. So the more authentic we are, right. we're, we're always told to be that. And then the emotion, uh, I'm constantly being coached. Well, we talked earlier about being more Oh, oh, more optimistic about my pe more enthusiastic <laughs> about my pessimism. Yeah, but it, yeah. it it's a, it is about it being emotional because when you are when you have an emotion, right, it makes all the difference in the world. Being vulnerable, all know, of that. Yeah, showing your true. I think that's a really good point. Certainly, uh, as a business person, if you are looking to make a deal with me, and I believe you, I see that you know I, the facts that you're you know you're giving to me. I, I believe what you're saying. There's the so we truth. We have trust. Well, we, well, we have tr we have trust because you believed me. That's true. That's true. <laughs> right. So we're, and the emotion is that I I feel as though that you're a human. You know, you're not just a you know an automaton that's trying to you know sell me a new widget. The emotion of it that you're bringing to me, we're two humans interacting in a in a business deal. I think that that the the truth and the emotion does build the trust that enables me to follow through on a deal with you. Because we're we're thinking about a relationship rather than a transaction. Precisely. Because there's a human involved. And as we learned earlier, we're hardwired to be social. Right, right. But this is, 
you know, this is in our DNA, and we, we, we kind of fight that, I think. And we try to do stuff on our own, and we can't do things on our own. We need to do, I love this natural pairing, because what you said, it is, you know, truth plus emotion. It's a natural pairing right. to have right. those things. Back on uh, the topic that you mentioned about um, communication and moving into this period of, of pure imagery and, and less text. I mean, one I, I wrote uh, a story, uh, a, a book after uh, um, it was, I guess, three years ago after uh, the, the loss of my good friend and mentor, our good friend yep. and mentor Mike Degree. Uh, in a period of mourning, I, uh, I recognized that I had a story, a fictional story, that I wanted to get onto paper. But as I did research and I, I, I recognized that my audience was teenagers, I wanted to be communicating the story to teenagers, I read more and more that at age 14, most, most teens begin to move away from books and they're now focusing on video games, YouTube, Facebook, the internet. They're not, there's very little reading that goes on, certainly in the fictional realm or as a proper book. So in order to attract that audience to my book, I worked with artists from around the world to paint scenes from my book and then worked with Adobe After Effects artists to create uh, a parallax, a multi-dimensional experience that they that is a scene from the book is viewable on your iPad or your Kindle Fire that does take you into that emotion because again the for for many for most perhaps it's the it's the visual it's the it's the auditory it's the music that comes across in these short multimedia segments from my book that take you deeper into the narrative than if you had just read the pages alone. Can we find that someplace? Yeah, in fact, it's on iTunes. Uh, it, well, the website is probably the easiest. It's lastextinction.com, lastextinction.com. It's available on iTunes uh, and Amazon, but it's a story, Mark, um, of uh, a National Geographic expedition uh, that goes into the middle of the Peruvian Amazon in, searching, in search of an uncontacted tribe that is alleged to have a, uh, ha the ability to communicate directly with the animals. Mm -hmm. And the animals are... are, are is, this, is this true? Uh, this is your... Probably, but not to the best of my you knowledge. Have, you have <laughs> one, of, one of the things I want to have happen before I die is be able to talk to animals. <laughs> well, they're talking to you. Serious. You're just not hearing them, as, right. as my thought. I, I've been told, uh, boy, you hear hear first, folks, um, <laughs> that th th they don't talk. What they do is they send pictures. Right. And right. that if you can, if you think about that, and you can, they'll send pictures, and you're sending pictures. So, because they are communicating, they're just not talking to one another. So definitely, that, definitely. that's definitely on my bucket list. Yeah. Might, might not be on everyone's, but well, for it's. Me. I th it is at the center of the story of, of uh, communicating um, these six sacred species that can never be allowed to go extinct. And uh, the animals are basically warning uh, humans that, you know, any one of these species that is allowed to go extinct will have global ramifications. 
And um, this was coming at a time when we were, this again was several years ago, a few years back, where we were seeing unprecedented storms across the planet. In fact, did you, I don't know if you just read, but there's a hurricane in the North Atlantic right now. Right now? In January. January. There's huh. a hurricane in the North Atlantic. Just, again, unprecedented, warm hurricane. The fuel for a hurricane is warm right. ocean. Right. So those, uh, that's, that's wow. they, I think they said that they haven't had that for 50 years. This idea of visual storytelling, um, we have, uh, you know, we've settled on podcasting as a way to get the story across because people can multitask. Right. I can listen to this while I'm doing something else. This right? is great, yeah. Uh, and then visual, I've got to be, you know, I'm glued to that. And as you said, uh, as w what we heard, uh, we heard just recently, uh, go into a coffee shop or an airplane airport, and 90% of the people are staring at a screen. That's true. So you're you're totally not wrong to have something. Right. Is there? Um, have you figured out an ideal length for these? Because your your subject matter, I'm gonna guess, is fairly dense. Uh, and you have to you lighten it up and, and illustrate through visuals and the sound and all of that. Do you think there's with this uh, 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 continuous partial attention mm -hmm. that we have? I won't say ADD. I'll just say continuous partial attention. Right. Is there a ideal length for these videos? Uh, for the videos in the book? Uh, no, in, in just in what you're teaching and what you're learning, and, and because I gotta admit, I've gotta guess your craft is constantly having to figure out. Okay, we're telling a story. Who's listening? Right. How long will they listen? How Precisely. long will they watch? Because it doesn't. You could do the greatest technical job to the greatest facts in the world, but if yeah. you know, right. they turn off after three minutes, seven minutes, nine minutes, it's why TED talks are 18 minutes long. Right. Do you have a sense of what that length is? Yeah. These days, I'm targeting three to five minutes for for uh, these these science-based films. These because they're largely web-driven and right. and in right. fact, they're largely mobile. So for m most people absorbing. Uh, media like this, it's coming off of their, you know, laptop, their PC, right. their their iPad, or their iPhone, you know, their their mobile. But that is a that's definitely targeting, you know, a, a younger audience. Right. And, sure. Um, and I think that there's room for, you know, uh, sort of a a middle-aged crowd uh, that would be more willing to watch a longer piece, but probably not on their phone or on their tablet, but maybe on their computer, and certainly on broadcast. I mean, broadcast television remains, for the most part, in the 26-minute, half-hour, uh, or even an hour-long uh, documentary that you know you might still find on Discovery or BBC. Uh, and then there's a feature. You know, you could make an hour and 20, hour and 30-minute long feature film. But that's for that experience when you're sitting in a theater and you're fully immersed in that scene. So first and foremost, you define who your audience is going to be. If it's, you know, if you're targeting a young audience, then unquestionably you're going to be placing it in a, uh, in a short form category. Longer, longer pieces might do well for a, a bit of an older audience. I'm, I'm thinking that you've got a, you know, a huge topic like climate change or other op scientific opportunities there are. Do you then teach how to tell a story over multiple episodes? We uh, we don't address series storytelling in Blue Horizons. Uh, it's it's 
the students have an assignment. They break up into groups of four to five students. There's usually 15 to 20 students in the class. And they are meant to be producing 10 to 15 minute docs. Uh, that just seems to be the sweet spot for the 10 weeks that we give them to learn everything about. And, and get it done. And get it done. Do they actually produce that doc when they're done? They do. They uh, they do. They learn everything that they need Where to do. Where can we it. go see? How, can we go see them? There. Uh, yeah. Well, in fact, uh, each summer we we do the screening of the films at the Pollock Theater out at UCSB. Usually around August twentieth is when the class ends. It's a beautiful night. The students come up and we interview them like I they bet do it's great. at the uh, well, at the film, film festival. festival. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and then uh, uh, many of them end up online uh, at the Carsey Wolf Center's website. Uh, which I don't know off the top of my head, but it's the We'll get it in the show notes. You send okay. it to me. We'll get it in the show notes. Okay, perfect. I, I'm reminded of when I was at Wavefront, we, a teacher came to me and said, you know, there's an opportunity with at-risk kids locally to teach them animation skills. Would you be up for doing an after-school program? And I said, what a great idea. Sure. And we had, a, we had a room, and we, we put some SGIs in there, and... Uh, we had kids, and we said, how do we give them a mission, right? You want to need a mission, right? What's the mission? And I thought, let's do something that's important. Let's add some value to the community. Uh, we have the ocean, so our mission will involve the ocean. And how do we tell stories about the ocean? I'm just thinking about this now in this conversation with you 20 years after we did that, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that um, we did it for four years in a row. And we studied, like we worked with the geography department at UCSB to stitch together underwater maps, geog uh, you know, uh, uh, models and geometry maps, all the way to the San Ynez Mountains and the Channel Islands. No one had actually done, stitched all that together. Wow. So our guys did that. It was this massive database. The first one we did was kind of answering the question, how did the pygmy mastodons get out on the channel. How did that work? Right, right. And we, they, kids worked with scientists at the wherever they could find them, and they did an animation and showed where the water was, the water level was 10,000 years ago, and it exposed a land bridge down off Ventura. That's so cool. And they were like, oh, that's how they did it. And they went and presented their work. It was the Year of the Ocean. It was at the Natural History Museum. And we had to lug this, you know, 800-pound computer out there to, to show this. It was We didn't have the Internet, all of that, <laughs> right, right. Uh, to be able to do it. But I showed up, and, and one of the kids, and these are at-risk kids. You know, he had hair down. You know, he's just kind of a scruffy kid, real smart. And I looked at him. He's white shirt, tie. His hair is cut. You go, Andrew, what, what happened? And he goes, I think they'll take me more seriously this way. Wow. And I was like, wow. And they did. They were the hit of that show. Here's these kids who've had this opportunity to solve a problem, but was through telling us. And I think about it now, we were just doing facts. Right. We weren't telling a story. I've, I've learned that now. That could have made it even more powerful. And I'm so glad you're working with these students to do this and training them, you know, to get out there and help the scientists get these important stories out. Thank you for that. Hey, it's my pleasure. I, I, I think that the greatest reward for me comes in, uh, in that kind of reply that your student said, you know, that he felt that by, you know, presenting himself more professionally, they would take him more seriously. I, uh, I'm always 
uh, in awe of students when they tell me that Blue Horizons has shown them a path that they didn't know was possible. Hmm. You know, they, they may have been film students, but they didn't see their passion for the environment. Or they may have been environmental scientists, and they didn't know that there was this media vehicle that would enable them to stretch their right brain out. So, the f I mean, to have the opportunity to, to literally, you know, carve and begin to uh, direct a young person's life in, in, such a, in such a meaningful direction, you know, I, we're not just telling them, go out and make a film, skateboarding or, you know, beating up your friends. This is actually, this is, to your point, a direction. You know, here is, here is a very real skill of digital video production combined with, uh, you know, a, a very important uh, societal issue of the environment. And together, it's this synergy that I don't think you can capture easily anywhere else. Well, you're the Sherpa for those students. Showing I them the way, right? I, am. I, I am. love that. As a fellow, as a Sherpa myself, I, I recognize that. And I want to thank you so much for coming today. Where can people find more information about what you're doing? Uh, earthmedialab.com. Earthmedialab.com. That and uh, lastextinction.com are uh, sort of my latest projects. Perfect. I love that. Thank you so much for thank you. spending the time with us. I uh I love this part of the show specifically, which is we've had this great conversation for now 45 minutes. We've traveled. As I said at the beginning, I didn't know where we would end. <laughs> I, I, I loved hearing what you've done and, and really what you're going to do um, is important where you're going. What should we call this show? It needs a great title to make it stand up amongst the rest of the shows. Oh, putting me on the spot. Mm -hmm. Huh, jeez. What should we call it? Um, Media, uh, environmental media muse. Um, oh. I'm terrible with titles. You know, when I'm making a film, I never. That's just a self limiting belief you have, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you came up with a great title Environmental Media Muse. Done. Okay, there we go. I was going to say that I usually wait until production is done before I try to give it a title. That's why we don't do a title at the beginning of the show. <laughs> well, that's right. This I is do the exactly end. the same thing. It's like <laughs> we, we think about the whole deal at the end. So environmental media muse, colon, oh, Michael the, Hanrahan. I just wanted to offer that I, I, I've got uh, the fact check on uh, Zozanthelli. And, uh, How do we spell it? Uh, Z-O-O-X-A-N-T-H-E. L L A E Zozanthelli, and uh, so to quote uh, Zozan, where are what website? Oh, Probably matter. your website. Most reef-building corals contain photosynthetic algae called zozanthelli that live in their tissues. The corals and algae have a mutualistic relationship. The coral provides the algae with a protected environment and compounds they need for photosynthesis. So there's a trust relationship there. It is exactly. Right? Truth Fair. plus emotion equals trust. What a perfect way to end it. So thank you so much. I also want to thank, again, California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services, our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio, and a shout-out to local Westlake Blue Microphones. I uh, love this new technology. And Cielo24, who provides the searchable captions for our show. The 805 Connect Project is supported by partners and 
sponsors throughout the region. We want to thank them as well. More information about our partners at 805connect.com. And Patrick, this episode, I think, is going to have a really uh, specific and broad audience. What can our listener do to help us grow that? Well, the number one thing is that if you've enjoyed this episode, go back through and listen to the back catalog. Mark now has over 50 shows up online at anywhere you listen to find podcasts. And if you, wherever that is, whatever app you listen through, whatever uh, place you downloaded, if you could go there and uh, give Mark some feedback. Uh, he is always constantly fine-tuning the show. We are always constantly fine-tuning the show, looking for uh, new directions to go and new ways to improve. So let us know what those are to you. Uh, we love listener feedback. So uh, write, review, and rate. I love that. You can send me a note to mark at 805connect.com. Uh, I'm particularly interested in ideas around leadership. Mm -hmm. 2016, I really want to focus on leadership. And I think that's uh, going to give us a, a lot of meaty uh, interviews. We, we have yet to have a presidential campaign uh, or a uh, you know, candidate in here. So we're looking for our first <laughs> presidential candidate. We've had a, co a congressional candidate. Yes, so now we've had that. Looking for the presidential let's, candidates. Let's see some leadership. So Bernie Sanders, 2016. There, if, okay. If, any, if you know him, call him. We'd love to have him on. Yes, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> and until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations. Mm -hmm.